Glad you guys are here this morning. My name is Sean. For those of you who don't know, um, I'm one of the pastors here and glad that you're joining us this morning um, on this holiday weekend, which turns out your options were to be here at church or to be camping in the rain. And I think you made a better choice. So I'm glad you're here this morning. If you're joining us online this morning and you're camping somewhere in the rain, it's Oregon. So um, it just, it is what it is. And we're glad that you're joining us as well, which by the way, I got to give a shout out online. If you guys will join with me, just bear with me for a moment. Um, Today is actually my mom's birthday. And I know that she's watching because she's my mom. And if she's not, she'll feel really guilty when I share this clip with her um, that she didn't watch online. But uh, happy birthday, mom. Um, they're camping somewhere, and it's probably raining on them. So anyways, hey, if you have a Bible, Matthew 27 is where we're going to be. Matthew 27. Um, you can get there so that you can see a little bit of it. Um, but we're going to kind of jump around a little bit because this story in Matthew 27 is actually in all four Gospels. And each of the Gospels give us a little snippet of the fullness of the story. And so um, if you're um, you know, on your phone or on a tablet or a paper copy, you can turn there. Before you do, I got a quick... Um, announcement for you, reminder thing for you, which maybe didn't work here. Let's try uh, and go back. And the lights are going to change for a second, so nobody panic. Oh, 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 now I lost it. Now I'm in trouble. There we go. Okay, let's try this again. No? No. It's not showing up anywhere. Well, guess what? Here, I'm going to tell you about it anyways, and then I'm not going to have a teaching monitor. You're going to have to trust me that the things I tell you are true, okay? So here, um, Rooted, here's the deal. Uh, here's what I know. Whether you're joining us online today or you're in the room, that there are a lot of people who have started to get connected with this church in the last year, 18 months. That um, a lot of chaos happened in COVID, and whether you're brand new to church or you were going somewhere before COVID, I know that there's a lot of people here that haven't really been well connected and are are kind of wanting an opportunity, you know, maybe you've been here six months, nine months, and you're trying to kind of like figure out like, hey, um, how do I kind of really ground myself here? And our answer, the, the answer, the question to your, the answer to your question, trust me, uh, I do this for a living. The, the answer to your question is rooted. If you want to figure out how to get connected if you want to figure out um, who Jesus is and what this whole following Jesus thing is about, if you want to find out how to find a place to serve, if you want to find anything, Rooted is our answer. That's what we're going to tell you, right, is Rooted. It's 10 weeks, which sounds like a big commitment, but anything worth doing is worth a commitment. It takes a commitment. It takes time. Um, it doesn't start until September, so I recognize, like, um, the rest of Oregon spring and then our six weeks of summer is all between now and next summer, uh, between the, next September. But I want to tell you about it now because it's, it's, it's what you want to do. It's where you want to get connected. It's totally worth doing. You can find information by texting the word Monmouth to 97,000. Um, and there's no secret sauce to it. If you've never heard about Rooted before, here's what we're going to do for 10 weeks. We're going to invite you to do what the Bible tells us to do with a group of people, and then every single one of us is going to be shocked when God does awesome things, right? It's kind of like he meant what he said when he tells us to do these things. And so I'd really encourage you, you can find more by texting word mom at the 97,000. So Matthew, he, here's our story. Um, 
Uh, you guys don't have it, but I have my notes down here, so I have to follow along with myself, which means I might as well just hold on my phone here, okay? So um, he, here's, our, here's our, our passage today. Matthew 27, it says this. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So um, today we're going to talk about this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, if you've been keeping track with us, or if you know the story of Scripture, Jesus, born, born of a virgin, grows up, begins his ministry, baptized by John, preaching, proclaiming. Matthew 4 tells us that the message that he proclaimed was this, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is here in your midst, that what Jesus was doing proclaiming, inviting people to wasn't uh, an escape from this world to something else. It was about ushering in the kingdom of God into our midst, into this place. Um, And now my notes totally went away. Jason! Um, uh, Into our midst. And Jesus uh, gets wrongly arrested, um, executed, and he, at this point in the story, Matthew 27, he's dead. He's hanging on the cross, he's dead, um, and they are beginning the Passover celebration, right? And then all four Gospels include this story about this guy that we know nothing else about except for this story. Now, if, if you've been around here long or if you study Scripture a lot, um, there, there's this thing that you should know, is that any single time that someone's name is included, that's important. Um, if someone's name's there, there's plenty of stories in Scripture where the person's name is not included. There's stories all throughout the Old Testament that talks about the widow or, or, or the, the widow of the prophet or these people, and there's just no name associated. And in the New Testament, one of the stories that um, I really like to point to is um, the, the woman with the issue of bleeding is, is how it describes her. It doesn't give us her name. And the reason you can assume it doesn't give us her name is because nobody would have known who she is. It didn't matter. If he'd written, you know, Julie had an issue with bleeding, and then Jesus healed her. Everyone would be like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know who Julie is. It doesn't matter. But when someone's name is included, it's important because, because the people reading, they're assuming that they would know. So, so we hear the story about this Joseph of Arimathea. Now, um, Scripture only has so much time and space to include so many stories. In fact, the book of Mark, the book of Mark is the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters right? It's only 16 chapters. And here's the, here's the thing that you have to ask the question of. Why, with only 16 chapters, was this story included, a story about burying a dead body, right? The story begins telling us of this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is a nearby town. It tells us that he's rich. He's wealthy. We're going to see that that's important later. He's wealthy. It, it goes on and it says this, but a secret one, okay, he's a, he's a disciple of Jesus, but it says a secret one for fear of the Jews. Now, that's a weird detail, right? It's a weird detail to fathom or to imagine that you could be a follower of Jesus, but to be a secret follower of Jesus. And it says that he's a secret follower of Jesus for fear of the Jews. Now, it's not just any Jew, Right? It's not all the nation of the Jewish people. What Matthew's referring to is um, the, the Jewish leadership, for fear of the Jewish leadership. So, so here's, here's the next interesting detail we learn about Joseph of Arimathea, fear of the, fear of the Jews. It says this, he, um, being Joseph, came, this is Mark 15, 
a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting. It came back on. You don't have to worry about it. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Okay? So here's what we know about Joseph of Arimathea. He's rich. He's well-known because it includes his name. And then he's a part of the council, which is the council is um, the Sanhedrin. Right? So all these people that so many times are against Jesus, he's a part of that group of people. He's a, a part of them. He was a part of the, uh, the council. It says, he gathered up courage. Okay, so Jesus' body's hanging on the cross. Okay, you got to go with the story. Jesus' body's hanging on the cross. It's the end of Passover. I mean, Passover's coming. It's the last day before Passover. It's Friday afternoon, and Jesus' body's hanging. And it says, he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. What did it just say about uh, Joseph of Arimathea? It said he was a secret follower. He was a secret follower, but then he gained courage to go ask Pilate. And for us, we might think like, oh, well, that's not a big deal. Like he just, he's going to ask for a dead body. But in Roman law, to associate with someone who received capital punishment meant that you could receive the same punishment as that person. You remember the story of Peter, right? Um, Peter denies Jesus three times. You know why he denied Jesus? Because if he had associated himself with Jesus, he could have been the fourth cross hanging on the hill. Right? If to associate with someone who receives capital punishment means that you can, be, you can receive the same punishment they do. So we go with this Joseph of Arimathea, this rich guy that we don't know a lot about, but the people do, part of the Sanhedrin, a secret follower, but then it says he gained courage to go to Pilate, the most powerful man in his region, to ask for the body of Jesus. Now, we might wonder why this is such an important story, right? Like, couldn't, couldn't all the, couldn't all the um, uh, authors just said, you know, Jesus died, and then they buried him in a tomb? But for Jewish culture, the care of the body was incredibly important. In fact, in Old Testament law, um, not only did you have to bury every good Jew, but um, the Old Testament law said that they had to bury foreigners who died in their land, and even enemies who died in the land must be buried. It was a way to care for and to show respect, to, to show respect for life, even in death in caring for the body. If, if, if Joseph had not gotten the courage to go get Jesus' body, you know where his body would have ended up? It would have ended up in this place that we call um, the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna might be words that you've heard before, maybe not. Um, Gehenna is, is actually the place that Jesus refers to when he's describing hell. Uh, when you see Jesus in the Gospels talking about hell, he's always referring to this place, Gehenna. It's this valley right outside the town. It's, it's their dump. It's where all the refuse and all the trash of the city would go out to this, this valley. And in this valley, um, where they dump everything, it would, it would be constantly burning, constantly consuming the trash. And so, so when, when Jesus says, you know, he's talking about hell, and he, he says it, it's like Gehenna, Right? The fires are never consumed. There's constant burning going on. He's describing a place they're very familiar with. And as a criminal, if nobody had come to claim Jesus' body, which is a very dangerous thing to do, then the Romans would have removed him from the cross and they would have taken him out to the dump and they would have tossed his body onto the pile to be consumed by the fire. But instead, this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, comes to collect Jesus' body. And it says this, 
It says in Mark that Joseph brought a linen cloth. He took him down and wrapped him in the linen cloth. He himself went and removed the body of Jesus. John 19 says this, Nicodemus, okay, so we're talking about Joseph of Arimathea, and then we get Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? Um, Nicodemus shows up in John 3. If you don't know the story of Nicodemus, you probably know Jesus' response to him. He says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have an everlasting life. This is Nicodemus. He's part of the Sanhedrin as well. He's a powerful and prominent religious leader, and he comes as well to help Joseph. And so we've got Joseph and Nicodemus, and it says, who'd first come to him by night also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds in weight. So, so, so see this with me. See this moment. See this moment. They, they come to collect Jesus' body off the cross. Jesus probably weighed 125, 130 pounds. He's probably a relatively short man. And they come to take this torn apart body, blood drying all over his body, probably completely naked when they take him off the cross. And they carry his body. One of the gospels says they, t- they carry him to this tomb because it was nearby. <laughs> which seems appropriate, carrying the dead body of Jesus and a hundred pounds of um, perfume and anointing oils and myrrh to anoint the body. Matthew 27 ends the story this way. It says this, they being Joseph and Nicodemus laid Jesus's body in his new tomb which he'd hewn out of the rock and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. But not just those two were there, it says this, and Mary Magdalene was there. And the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. And other gospel accounts tell us of other women. And depending on how we synthesize these names and these references, because not all of them are given names, some of them are given references, um, there was probably somewhere between three and five other women staying there by the tomb um, with Joseph and Nicodemus as they laid him to rest. And, And I wondered... Why, why did every single gospel account think it was important to tell us the story of a very routine procedure by people that have no other significance than the story that they, they carry here? Why couldn't they have just saved the ink? I mean, if I was writing the book of Mark, right, only 16 chapters, if I was writing the book of Mark, there's a lot of things I would rather know than the process for which they buried Jesus. It would have sufficed to me. You know how they describe the crucifixion of Jesus? You ever thought about this? You know how they describe the crucifixion of Jesus? This way. And there they crucified him. Right? Couldn't, 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 wouldn't it have just been easy to say, and there they buried him. Right? Why waste it? If, if, if I had to choose things that I wanted to hear about Jesus' life, um, there would have been plenty of miracles that I would have rather heard about. There's plenty of things that I would have much rather heard. So why did they think it was so important to include this story? And it occurred to me, um, this is a story of what worship looks like. A lot of times we have created this theology that worship is always happy and joyous. In fact, um, I came across one writer um, who was an idiot. Um, 
Can I say those words in church? Is that okay? Are we all okay with that? Said, um, because we worship only the goodness of God, it is not worship if we are not happy. And I'm like, what? What? Have you read the book of the Psalms? Right? Do you know the Psalms? It's, it's, the, it's the Jewish hymn book. There's a whole category of hymns in the Jewish hymn book called laments. Did you know there's a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations? The laments. The laments. Here's what I realized is that by osmosis or on purpose, many of us have developed the same practice that we believe that worship is only contained in our joyous responses to God. And yet, some of the most intimate moments of worship come through tears, not laughter. In the story, we see Joseph of Arimathea. We, we know, we know, here's the thing, we know the end of the story, right? So we can look at it a little bit more lightheartedly because we can look at the story and go, oh, you know, they're burying his body, they're anointing his body, they're preparing him for burial, but you know what? On the third day, boom, the grave's coming open and Jesus is coming marching out and he's going to declare that he's risen from the dead and he's going to show himself to the disciples and to more than 500 people and he's going to send into heaven. Woo, God's winning. But that's not what Joseph knew in that moment. You know what Joseph knew? He held the dead body of his Messiah. He held the body of the man he'd put his hopes and dreams in. The, the one that he believed the kingdom of God was coming in that moment through him. He held his body limp and cold, torn apart and covered in blood and sweat and dirt. And he thought it was the end of the story. And you have to imagine that moment that there was many tears that poured over the dead body of Jesus. But it's a story of worship. A story of worship in the hardest of seasons. So there's four things that I saw in this story that I want to share with you of what worship actually looks like. Because there are times, there are times when we joyously worship and we celebrate God's goodness and we say, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good, woo! But there's so many other times in our life where worship looks way heavier and with far more tears, just like Joseph of Arimathea. So here, here's what I got for you. I got four points for you, okay? Worship. Worship is personal, but it's not secret. You remember how the story begins? It begins that he was a secret disciple of Jesus, but his worship began the moment he walked into Pilate and he declared himself associated with Jesus. Um, uh, Gerald Van says this. Gerald Van says this. Worship is not a part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Worship is not a part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. That, that our worship should be personal, like it should be intimate and deep and meaningful, and it should, it should come from the deepest recesses of who we are, but as long as our worship is only contained in here, it is not worship. Worship is an outward expression of what God's doing inside of us. 
And Joseph of Arimathea demonstrated this in his courage. He got courage. And some of us today, this moment, need to get the courage to worship. The courage to be bold. The courage to go before the pilots of our life and declare our association with Jesus. He gathered the courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Worship is personal, but it is not secret. Here's number two. Um, Worship is costly. Worship is costly, but it is not wasteful. It is costly, but it is not wasteful. Um, in, In John, when it tells us the story, it says that they brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds in weight. You know how much that that mixture would have cost in today's money? Um, uh, historians and people smarter than me theorize that that 100 pounds probably cost between 150 and $250,000. It says at the beginning, right? The first thing we looked at was Joseph of Marathia was a rich man. They come to anoint the body of Jesus with 150 to $250,000. Now, to give you perspective in their culture, a wealthy, influential, important person would have normally been anointed with and covered in between thirty dollars and $50,000. And their sacrifice is excessive. It's abundant. It's costly. It's painful. And here's the thing, okay? Worship will always be costly. If your worship does not cost you something, it is hard to call it worship. Because you see, the root word worship, what it means, it, it comes from the, the Middle English that means that the, the phrase was worship, something that would carry value. And a thing only carries value because what we ascribe it value to. So, so here's the deal, right? If your worship is five minutes in one song, five minutes in one song, then the worth you're ascribing to the creator of the universe who redeemed you and restored you through the gift of his son is five minutes in a song. It's why scripture tells us to offer our bodies, to offer our very selves as a living sacrifice, to declare that he is worth everything that we are. If following Jesus, if following Jesus, I don't just mean singing songs in worship. But obedience and submission and following Jesus and declaring his goodness has not cost you. I'd venture to challenge you, is it even worship that you're offering? Or are you just a convenient spectator? See, here's the thing. Um, I'm a Cowboys fan. You can forgive me later, okay? Um, you know how much it costs me when the Dallas Cowboys lose? Nothing. We've gotten real used to it in the last 20 years. Like, we're, we've gotten real comfortable with it, right? I'll, I'll watch Dallas Cowboys, and I'll be into the game, and I, yeah, come on, oh, why did we pay Dak Prescott? Why did we pay, why, 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 right? And then the game ends, and I walk away. You know what it costs me? Maybe a couple hours. Maybe a couple hours. So you know how much despair there is when they lose? Always. I turn the TV off and walk away. Because I have not invested myself, and all I am is a fan. 
for many of us, following Jesus has never cost us. And so when things don't work out, when it's inconvenient, we can just turn off the game and walk away because we've never invested ourselves. Worship, true, deep, the kind of life-giving worship that brings restoration and intimacy and hope and joy in your life will cost you. It cost Joseph of Arimathea greatly. Worship is personal but not secret. It is costly but not wasteful. And then number three is this, is worship is best done together. Worship is best done together. Uh, a, a statement that I say around here pretty often is that um, we believe and that something mysteriously ha beautiful happens when the people of God gather to worship. And I, I don't just mean songs, but that's included. But there's something beautiful and powerful and, and meaningful when the people of God gather together. We were people meant to be a part of a community together. That worship without others is deprived of something of the nature of what we're supposed to be doing. Um, this, this lady, Ann Ortland, she's an author, she described it this way in an illustration. She said, many of us approach worship and community and the church of God like a bunch of marbles. And she said, if you put a bunch of marbles on a table and then you take one marble and you push it into the other marbles, it kind of knocks the other marbles around. Right? And we go, woo, look at all that that one marble's doing. And a lot of times we approach church that way. We, we show up to a room, we show up online, and, and we have someone stand up and, and, and go, come on, let's worship. And it's like a marble getting pushed against all the other marbles. And we all feel good because we're like, oh, that was awesome. It was great. It was good. Oh, it was a good morning. Right? But how much has the marble changed when it's removed from the table? Zero. She said, what it means to be the community of God, to be people who worship together in life, in every area of our life, is like putting a bunch of grapes on a table. She said, if you take a grape and you put a bunch of grapes on the table and you start smashing the grapes together, you know what happens to the grapes? They start to change. The skins break open. Juices spew out onto one another and the grapes of one another become wet with the juices of one another. She said, that's, that's what it means to, to worship together. That's what it means to be the community of God is that when we leave that table, when we leave that space for that moment, we leave covered in the life of one another. Scripture says it this way, that we're called to carry our burdens one with another. That this life that we're supposed to live in following Jesus, that we were meant to live it together, one with another. It's great. You should sing in your car. You should sing in the shower. You can sing in your living room. You can sing out in the wilderness. You can sing wherever you want. You can worship. You can sit and study your Bible in solitude. And there's an important and valuable place for solitude and silence in our life that we probably need a lot more than we actually have. But if our worship does not include community, something is deeply lacking. Joseph, look at what it says. Well, you can't look at it, but let me tell you what it says. Nicodemus, who'd first come to him by night, also came. In his darkest, most painful, most difficult moments as he's removing the body of Christ from the cross, his buddy Nicodemus stands beside him. That's what it means to be part of the church. It says this, Mary Magdalene was there 
and the other Mary sitting opposite of the grave, that this journey that Joseph went on, he did not go alone. The last one is this. That worship is personal but not secret. It is costly but not wasteful. It is best done together. And then number four, it is relational, not ritualistic. It's relational and not ritualistic. You remember um, Mark says it this way, and I love the way Mark tells the story. It's why I, I included him in my notes. It says, Joseph bought a linen cloth. He took him down and wrapped him in the linen cloth. None of the other gospels include that single little detail in the middle. He bought a linen cloth, and then who removed the torn up, bloody, bruised, messed up body of Jesus, dead and limp off the cross? It was Joseph. Now, now think, of, think of this moment. Think of, think of the moment out on the hill. They, they, they've, they've torn Jesus' flesh off his back. They've torn his back apart with what's called the cat of nine tails. The skin on his back would have likely been torn into shreds and ribbons of literal flesh hanging off. There would have been muscles and bones and maybe even internal organs exposed hanging off the back of his body. His whole body would have been covered in blood from top where they pressed the crown of thorns into his head and blood had run down all the way down his body. Limp and hanging there. They'd hung him by three nails. Think of the size of the nails that would have been required and the force of those nails driven through his hands and through his feet to secure him to this um, piece of wood. Many, those who were crucified, were expected to have to hang there for several days before they would expire. And they have to go to the body with the cross likely laid on the ground and remove those nails from the inside of his hands and his feet. Pick up his bloody and tore up body and carry it. I can imagine that as they sat there out in front of the tomb, taking these linen wraps and wrapping them one by one, that there would have been a lot of tears and taking the aloe and the myrrh and putting them in piece by piece. I can imagine that Joseph of Arimathea, I mean, he, just see it. I mean, he's sitting here. Jesus' body is laying on the ground. And, and, and one of them, you, you got to think, is, is just holding up this limp body of this man they'd given their whole life to. As they wrap his body and, and the tears as they look into this face of Jesus and they weep and they weep that's what worship looks like sometimes sometimes we worship in song and we rejoice Sometimes we, we celebrate God's faithfulness and his goodness, that he's never failed me, that he's never going to fail me, that, he, that he's in control and he's powerful and he's capable. And sometimes, sometimes the things that we hold most dear in life lay limp in our hands and we weep. And we pour our whole heart and soul out in front of God. And scripture says that we have a, empathetic high priest that he weeps with us. 
Some of the greatest intimacy you will ever find in your walk with Jesus is the moments when you sit on your knees and cry. Some of us, some of us today feel a bit distant from God feel a bit cold, feel a bit disconnected. And, and my question to you would be, has it been public? Has it, has, is it personal? Do you understand the cost that Jesus has given you? Ha, has, has following Jesus been costly? When was the last time it cost you anything to follow Jesus? Are you connected with other believers in a way where you can weep with one another and carry one another's burdens together? And in your worship, in your worship, do you, do you know him? Do you know the one who gave himself for you? There's a, a story, a, maybe a story about Mary Magdalene who's there with Jesus um, but it's probably not. It's probably another woman. But there's this story where she comes and she breaks open uh, this, this container of perfume, of nard, and she anoints Jesus' body with it. And, and you remember the story, and the disciples, they, they complain. They're like, look how wasteful it is! And Jesus says, you, you, don't, you don't understand what she's doing. You don't understand how beautiful and good it is. And, and here's what one theologian said that I thought was so beautiful. He said the, the, the container... The jar is like our heart. Until it is broken and poured out in front of him, it is wasteful and there is nothing. But the moment our hearts break and are poured on to Jesus, they perfume the room with his goodness and his presence. Some of us this morning need to pour out not our joys, not our rejoicing, not God is so good, but we need to pour out our brokenness as an act of worship, pour ourselves out in front of him that he might fill our lives, that he might fill this room with his presence and with his goodness.